Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing this morning? Man, spring break, and uh, we lose an hour. Slim pickings this morning. Okay, so today we are continuing our study in, what do you think? The Doctrine of Scripture, Bibliology. We've got a few more weeks in that, uh, and then we're going to go over how to study the Bible, which I think will be really encouraging. I've been told my whole life to read the Bible, but uh, it wasn't until college that anybody actually sat down with me and said, here's how you read it correctly. And so that was really helpful. Uh, but for the next three weeks, we're still going to be talking about the Doctrine of Scripture, but we're going to look at it from a historical perspective. So we're going to look at what the early church and medieval church thought about Scripture today. Next week, Jeff will be here, and we're going to talk about what the Reformers and the Reformation thought about Scripture and the Bible. And then the week after that, uh, I'll be talking about uh, the history of the English Bible. Uh, Where did we get English Bible translations? What about the King James? What about ones before the King James? That kind of thing. Should be a ton of fun. And by a ton of fun, I mean it's fun to me, but I'm also kind of a nerd. I hope that other people find that this is fun as well. Uh, But today we're going to talk about the uh, Bible in the early and medieval church. Um, Before we do that, I want to say this, anytime you're, you're looking at history. So church history is helpful because it lets us know how other Christians have thought before us. Uh, what have other spirit-inspired, spirit-filled Christians thought about the scriptures uh, before we get to 2017 in McKinney, Texas? There's a lot that's happened in between then. We're very far away from Jerusalem, all right, both in time and in space. And so uh, this is really helpful. So just to, one of the things I want you to think about as we go through this lesson is just realizing how weird history is. I mean, it should shock you. It should be, this is quite different than the way that I typically think of church. And so uh, it's supposed to do that. It's supposed to let us see some of our presuppositions and some of our pre-assumptions and these kind of things. So I'll, I'll give you an example just in church history where this is, uh, might be shocking to, to people. Who in here has a quiet time? All right, a time where you get alone with God to pray and study the Bible, maybe daily, maybe weekly, whenever it is. A lot of people, this is kind of Christianity 101 for us. We get saved As soon as we get saved, we're given an acoustic guitar, and we are told uh, that you need to now have a quiet time, all right? So you're now, you're to have a quiet time, which is where you, it sounds like a punishment, right? Quiet time. Uh, But you're to sit there, and you're to study the Bible, and you're to pray between you and, uh, and God. Here's what's so crazy. Most of church history has not had any conception like that of a quiet time. Why? Well, several reasons. One, you don't have a Bible in your language for the majority of church history. You don't have a Bible in your language. Out of the 2,000 years of church history, for three-fourths of that, you don't have a Bible in your language. Even after you get a Bible in your language, you're most likely illiterate, and so you can't read the Bible on your own. If you can read the Bible, you can't afford one because they're copied by hand. They're very, very expensive. Even in, uh, like, if you think of uh, England during the Industrial Revolution and these kind of things, even if you had a Bible, even if it was in your own language, even if you could read, you might live in a house with 30 or 40 people. So getting alone to try to have a time, a quiet time between you and God as you read your Bible just couldn't happen. So something that's so typical to us, something that we just think that's pretty basic to Christianity, reading our Bible on our own and praying. And by the way, it is. I want you to have that time. I want you to have that time where you hear from God by reading his word and you speak to God in prayer. But something that basic has not happened in most of church history. I'll give you another one. Who in this room right now is standing? I don't mean people coming in at the back. I mean, who who is standing in this room? I'm standing up on stage as I teach, and you guys are sitting down in chairs, or typically, uh, you know, a lot of people grew up sitting in churches with pews. You don't have that for a lot of church history. In the early church, the pastor would sit down and teach, and everyone else would stand. How about that? I kind of would prefer that. Sit down, you guys stand. If the sermon goes long, you really start to feel it, all right? 
even during the Reformation, they didn't have pews. The men would stand and the women would bring little stools and they would sit on that. And so you just need to know that as we look throughout church history, there should be things that shock us. And what it will do is it will let you see your assumptions, right? Don't think, so if you, if you think of what does the church look like for me traditionally? When we think of tradition, we have a tendency to think something like 20 years ago. That's not traditional, all right? Traditional is what does the church believe 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 800 years ago, whatever it might be. And so keep that in mind as we get in to study this. Uh, we're not doing early church history and medieval church history. That would be a much bigger topic. We're just doing what does the early church and medieval church think about Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture as we continue this study. Everybody with me on what we're doing? Oh, man. Everybody, everybody excited? Okay, yeah, all right. That's all I need. Okay. One person wooed. All right, so... Uh, that extra hour we lost is, uh, is, we're all feeling that. Okay, let's talk about Bibles in the early church. Let's talk about the early church. What would a church service have looked like in the very early church? So in the earliest church, right after the time of the apostles, first of all, you wouldn't meet in a building like this, all right? Remember, church means an assembly, a congregation, all right? It doesn't ever mean a building. It's never in reference to a building. We are the church. We are not in the church, if that makes sense. To say it another way, you can't really run in church, right? Unless you're running in the congregation, the church is a people. So this church would not gather in a big building like First Baptist Rome because the Romans would know where you are and they would come and kill you. And so instead, you would meet secretly in people's homes throughout the week. You would typically meet in the evening because a lot of people that were coming into the faith early on were people like women, slaves, those of lower classes in that time. And so they had to work. They didn't have leisure time like that. So they would come into somebody's home and you would have people gathered around, kids kind of running around like we have in community groups and stuff today. And what would happen is you would have a time of Bible study uh, and you would have a time of prayer. You would take communion together, and if there were any visitors, they were allowed to watch all of the service, but they weren't allowed to watch communion. So if you were a visitor and you were not a Christian, they would make you leave as the early church took communion. Uh, like I mentioned, a lot of people would sit on the floor. Some people would stand. It was much more informal. But we were doing in the early church some of the same things we're doing in church today. They're teaching the, the writings of the apostles. They're teaching the scriptures. They're teaching the Old Testament. They are uh, having a time of prayer. They're encouraging one another. They're using spiritual gifts. Someone would get up and say, hey, I think God has laid this on my heart, and they would share that. And so it was very informal in the early church. A lot of meeting at night. Uh, communion was a full meal. So not just a little cup and a cracker, but you would actually sit down and you would drink goblets of wine, you would eat bread. You see this in 1 Corinthians even, that uh, there's so much wine being uh, consumed that people are getting drunk. There's so much food being consumed that the poor people, as they come in later from the fields, they're being left hungry. And so it's just a very different conception uh, of church than we typically think of. So when it comes to how does the early church view the Bible, there's a few things to keep in mind. Number one, many churches only had one Bible and some only had certain books of the Bible. So in the very early church, your church might not even have a full Bible. You might have an Old Testament, a copy of Romans, and a copy of, you know, Revelation or something like that. And that's it. That's all you have. Uh, or if you had a full Bible, your church probably only had one of those. They were very expensive. All right? You had to copy them by hand. Today, when people print Bibles, they have to consider things like the font. Well, your font would be whatever the handwriting was of the guy that copied your Bible, all right? So you hope that he's a good writer. And so you might only have one Bible. Uh, number two, if an early church had a Bible, it was probably not in the native tongue of the people. Well, not probably. It was not in the native tongue of the people. Uh, it was most likely in Latin. It was in Latin. So what languages are, is the Bible written in? Or what languages are the Bible written in? Is are. You know what I mean. What Bible, what languages, Bible, you say words. Somebody. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Arabic. Okay, so what was it? Greek? 
Hebrew, there's one more. Yeah, uh, Aramaic, that's right. Yes, that's, is that what you said? I thought you said Arabic is a joke. Yeah, no. Yeah, we don't hold the Quran as part of scripture. Uh, yeah, so uh, Hebrew, Greek, and then parts of Daniel and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, which was one book, were in Aramaic. Uh, and so what happened, though, is that uh, most people did not know Hebrew. That was a Jewish language. That was kind of a smaller group. Uh, and uh, most people did not know Aramaic. And so what you had in 404... A.D. is a church father named Jerome who translated the entire Bible into Latin, all right? Into Latin, it's called the Vulgate. The word Vulgate has the word vulgar in it because that was actually considered a step down from Hebrew and Greek originally, and then eventually in the church that will be exalted and any other language will be seen as vulgar. So if you even had a Bible that you could afford or anything like that in the early church, it was typically in Latin, and we'll talk about that in a second. So uh, number three, most people were illiterate. For most of church history, most people have not been able to read. So not only is the church service in Latin, so you can't understand it, but even if you had a Bible, you couldn't read it. And so what they would do is they would have statues, they would have pictures, and they would have stained glass that would depict biblical stories so those who are illiterate could at least get some of those biblical stories. So if you go into a lot of ancient cathedrals, for example, over in Europe, a lot of the stained glass is not just beautiful patterns like this. Like I, These are really pretty, the kind that we've got in here. They'll have stories, though. So there'd be a picture on stained glass of David and Goliath, or there'd be a picture on stained glass of Moses walking down with the Ten Commandments. So that, that way, if you're an illiterate person, everyone can read pictures, right? You don't have to be taught how to read pictures. And so you can look and say, hey, there's a little guy throwing a rock at that big giant. Ah, I think I've heard something about the story of David and Goliath, and that was about all you got, because the service was in Latin, all right? So, uh, <clears throat> so that, that's what it would look like in the early church. Now, a few things to know about the early church's view of Scripture. Everybody with me so far? There's a bunch of random, this is like the Discovery Channel or something in here today. Okay. Uh, things to know about the early church's view of Scripture. Number one, they generally held that the Bible was perfect in everything and inspired by God. So a few weeks uh, ago, I talked about something called inerrancy that the Bible is seen as absolutely perfect, that there are no errors in the Bible. The Bible doesn't affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And there are a lot of people that would like to say that's kind of a modern idea. That's kind of a, you know, an idea that rises in the mid-1900s as conservatives are fighting for the truthfulness of the Bible. The problem is when you read these early church leaders and what they have to say about Scripture, they have a very high view of Scripture that it is perfect, that there is no error, that it's like we talked about in the scriptures, that it's like silver refined seven times, that it's perfect. So though they don't use the term inerrancy, the concept that the Bible is perfect and that there's no falsehood mixed with the truth of the Bible was generally held by the early church. Okay? Number two, the divine author was sometimes emphasized at the expense of the human author. Okay, is Jesus God or man? Yes, right? It's both. He's fully God and fully man. Is the Bible written by God or written by man? Yes, it's both, right? God is making sure that everything that the human author is writing is what God wants written in his book. And so in the same way that the incarnated word is fully God and fully man, the inscripturated word, the Bible, is also fully inspired by God and written by man. And so what we do today is we try to hold those two together. So when I find Paul's meaning in Romans... Guess whose meaning I found? God's. In the early church, you start to have interpretation, start leaning away from what the human author means, and you start having this huge emphasis just on the divine author. So though Paul might have not meant this, here's a really interesting kind of weird allegorical interpretation, and probably God means that. And so that starts taking over. That becomes very, very popular. 
St. Augustine would even say that any interpretation you come up with on any passage, as long as it promotes the love of God and the love of others, is a correct interpretation. Now, that leads to crazy town, all right? So you have to be careful there. So in the early church, in biblical interpretation, you a lot of times have the divine author being elevated over or against the human author instead of trying to hold those together. All right, I would say what Paul means is what God means and vice versa. So as I find the human author's meaning, I am finding the divine author's meaning. In the early church, one of the things you have to notice and watch out for is they have a tendency to lean towards the divine author over the human author, okay? Number three, in the early church, and this point has been overstated by some scholars, but this is, this is true to some extent. In the early church, you have a neglect of Jewish understanding of the Bible for Greek philosophical categories. Okay, what does that mean? Who are the earliest Christians? What, what race, what type of people are they? They're Jewish, right? So if you go to Israel today, I've been to Israel, some of the Jews will say, can I become a Christian and still be Jewish? What's funny is the early church is debating the opposite question. It's can you become a Christian without being Jewish, right? And so the earliest Christians are all Jewish. And so if you're Jewish, you already have a Jewish worldview, a Jewish understanding of the scriptures. Uh, most of the debates going on in Judaism are not so much doctrinal, they're about practice, so think about like an axe. What are they debating? Well, what rules of the Mosaic law do these Gentiles need to keep to come into the faith? In fact, a Sadducee who denied parts of the Bible and denied the resurrection was still considered a Jew, even though they disagreed with the Pharisees who held different theology. They had very different theologies, but they were still considered Jews. Why? Because ethnically they were Jewish and they did Jewish practices. Right after the time of the apostles, those that flood into the church are Gentile. They're those from Greek backgrounds. They're those from pagan backgrounds. They don't necessarily have Jewish understanding. So very early on in the church, you start to have this emphasis. You start reading the Bible a different way. You start focusing on Greek categories, philosophical categories. A lot of early church leaders are trained in classical philosophy. So if you look at what Jews are debating, how many steps should I take on the Sabbath, that's very different than what Greeks are debating of what is the substance and usia of God as it comes to da-da-da-da. They're in these very abstract, very philosophical categories. And so in the early church, because you have this shift from a very Jewish religion to now one that's allowing in a ton of Gentiles, you start to get this shift of thinking that is more Greek, it is more philosophical, it is more ethereal, uh, and so that's uh, something that plays into the early church's view of Scripture as well. And then lastly here, most early church leaders did not know Hebrew very well, so they relied on reading the Old Testament in Greek or in Latin. So we talked about that. So St. Augustine, for example, will mention how he loves Latin, he tolerates Greek, he does not know Hebrew, all right? And so a lot of early church leaders did not know Hebrew. Why? Because to learn Hebrew, you couldn't go online and buy Rosetta Stone and learn Hebrew. You had to find a Jew who knew Hebrew, who was a rabbi, who could teach you. And at this point, you don't have Judaism really flourishing. You have Judaism kind of being pushed out and these kind of things. So it's hard to find someone who can teach you Hebrew. So people start using the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, as their primary source of Scripture. Okay. Everybody good so far? All right, everybody take a big breath. Oh, we're having fun. We're tired. We lost an hour of sleep. It's freezing outside. What is going on in Texas? Okay. How was the Bible interpreted in the early church? And then we'll get into the medieval church. How was the Bible interpreted in the early church? Number one, you need to know this. The importance of interpreting the Bible traditionally begins to arise in the early church. What do I mean by that? If I'm an early church leader and we're loving and worshiping Jesus, we're loving, we're worshiping Jesus, we're getting together, we're fighting for holiness, we're telling people about Christ, the church is going forward, everything's great. And then all of a sudden, a heretic at some other church says, we love Jesus too, but we think he's just like a Superman angel and not really God. Ugh. That's not what I mean by that. So how do I refute that guy? 
How would I refute a heretic? What was it? The Bible, right? We agree that that's where we go to for our source of standard and standard of doctrine. So I would take the Bible and I would say, excuse me, Arius, or excuse me, Mr. Heretic. The Bible here says this, 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 this. You need to repent of your error. And then that person says, but look, I have my verses as well in the Bible. And it says this, 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 this. Now we're stuck. I'm appealing to the Bible. He's appealing to the Bible. How do we know who's right? Well, the correct answer is it's whoever can make the best case from the scriptures, It's going to the meaning of the text and looking at it consistently and seeing what the whole Bible says about the topic. That's how I prove my point to defeat the heretic. But that's not what the early church's answer is on how to deal with heresy. The early church's answer on how to deal with heresy is to say, okay, you're appealing to the Bible, I'm appealing to the Bible. Here's how I know I'm right because I'm interpreting it traditionally the way it's been interpreted. I'm interpreting it the way the guy that taught me Christianity interpreted it, the guy that taught him Christianity interpreted it, the guy that taught him Christianity interpreted it, which might be like the Apostle John or somebody like this. So when there started to arise division and false doctrine, by the way, the Bible and theology would be really easy if there were no heretics or false teachers. We would just come together and we would read it and we would worship Jesus. It's heretics and false teachers that make us have to do theology. All of a sudden, we're just worshiping Jesus, and somebody says something crazy, and now we've got to figure out, okay, there's only one God, but he's three persons, and how does that work? He's the same substance, and we have to do all that kind of stuff because of them. Heretics make our job harder, but it also increases our faith because it lets us be more specific on exactly what we do and we don't mean. But what you have in the early church is you have, and this will be very important later on, you have an appeal to tradition as the correct way to interpret the Bible. Not going to the Bible itself and just seeing what it says. It's traditionally how has the church interpreted that. That's going to come back to sting us later on in the Middle Ages. Okay? I'll give you an example. There were some big players that tried to defend this idea of tradition. I'll give you a few names. You don't have to memorize these. There will not be a test. Uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Vincent of Leron. Let me read you a quote. These are all early church leaders, by the way. That's all you need to know, early church leaders. Here's what uh, my boy Vincent of Leron says. He says this. Listen to this. Holy Scripture, on account of its depth, is not accepted in a universal sense. Okay, we just said that. Different people interpret the Bible differently. The same statements are interpreted in one way by one person, in another by someone else, with the result that there seem to be as many opinions as there are people. Therefore, on account of the number and variety of errors, there is a need for someone to lay down a rule for the interpretation of the prophets and the apostles in such a way that is directed by the rule of the Catholic Church. Catholic just means universal. Now, in the Catholic Church itself, the greatest care is taken that we hold that which has been delivered everywhere, always, and by all people. So here's what he's saying. There's one Bible, but people interpret it a bunch of different ways. How do we know who's right? His answer is not by going to the text and looking grammatically what it says and making a a case for it. His answer is by looking what all people everywhere have always believed. So tradition rises up in the early church as a way to refute false teaching, as a way to refute heresy. That becomes very important later on. Okay? Another thing you need to know, two main schools of interpretation pop up in the early church. When I say schools, don't think of like uh, an academy or something like that. Think of schools of thought. They were, they were in academies, but uh, think of schools of thought. There were two main ways of interpreting Scripture. The first is what's called Alexandrian. What city do you think that's in? Good. Memphis. No, Alexandria, right? Alexandria, Egypt. That's where that one comes from, Alexandrian. And the Alexandrian school of interpretation interpreted the Bible very allegorically, metaphorically. We'll talk about that in a second. The other school that arose was called the Antiochene, all right? The Antiochene. Again, what city do you think that was based in? Nailed it, all right? 
Antioch. Every time I hear Antioch, I think of Monty Python and the Holy Grenade of Antioch uh, and these things. So, uh, so you have these two schools of interpretation, all right? The first one, the Alexandrian school of interpretation, wants to say that we should interpret the Bible allegorically and metaphorically, okay? There was a Jew named Philo who did this earlier than the, than the uh, Christian church. He was a Jew that did this. And the reason that he did so is to make the Bible more tasteful to those who are Greek and those who are Roman. If you're Greek and you're Roman, you're cultured, all right? You live in expensive cities and you walk around with your togas and you talk about things like, what does it mean to be? And you have democracy and politics and all these kind of things and you're a very cultured person if you are Greek. And so when you read the Bible and you have this God telling the Jews to go in and kill all the Canaanites, that seems pretty vulgar to you. That seems pretty lowbrow, kind of redneck trailer. And so instead... What, the, uh, what this interpretation is trying to do is it's trying to uh, interpret the Bible in such a way that where it sounds more allegorical so that it's more tasteful for Greeks and Romans. That's what Philo is doing. And then the early church does the same thing. A lot of apologists, a lot of guys that defend the faith will interpret the Bible in this very allegorical way. So that way when the text says something that looks crazy or looks ridiculous, you can say, you're just so uncultured. You need to interpret that metaphorically. All right, you with me on this? You, you understand what, kind of what they're saying? So has there not been passages in the Bible that you read and you're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. All the time I read the Bible and I think, that I cannot believe that's in there. That's true, that's God's word, there's something wrong with me, there's nothing wrong with the scriptures. But as I read this, it's really difficult to explain to a lost person or a skeptic or an atheist. Am I right? Now, here's a good way I can get around that. I can just say, it's allegory. It's a metaphor. Don't take it so literal. And so you have this school of thought, the Alexandrian school, arising up in the early church that interprets the Bible uh, in this allegorical way. Now, there are places in the Bible that you should interpret allegorically, but we know that because of genre. Paul will do that in Galatians. The book of Revelation, for example, has a lot of metaphor and allegory. What you can't do is interpret the entire Bible that way, okay? Now, if you'll look on your handout, I want to read you. I've included the print in here. This is from St. Augustine. Who is St. Augustine, by the way? We've talked about him. Anybody know? Anyone want to take a stab in the dark? Brian, you, you, look, you look pregnant with thought. Why don't you give us your thought? Very good. He's an early church father from North Africa in a town called Hippo. He is the most influential theologian in all of church history. Outside of Jesus and the apostles, St. Augustine is the next biggest figure in church history, period. There is not a close second. The reformers appeal to him. The Catholics appeal to him. If you like doctrines like grace... And the Trinity and things like this, you can be partially thankful for Augustine for clarifying those things. They're already in the Bible, but he's the one that really, uh, he, he helps popularize some of these major doctrines that are really, really important. His name is St. Augustine. My son's middle name is Augustine after this guy. He's so great in so many areas, but he holds this view of interpretation, the allegorical Alexandrian view of interpretation, and it causes him to interpret some things, excuse me, incorrectly. Let's look at his interpretation of the parable of the prodigal, or of the uh, Good Samaritan. Before we do that, what is the story of the Good Samaritan actually about? What was it? Loving your neighbor, right? Jesus says, love your neighbor. Someone says, who's my neighbor? Trying to get out of it, and he says, it's that guy you hate the most, right? The purpose of the story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus makes this despised person, this kind of half-breed heretic Jew, the hero, a Samaritan, the hero of this story, that's the only point of the parable. You're not meant to read more. You're not meant to say things like, what's the Good Samaritan's name? You know, that's not the point of the parable. Here's how Augustine interprets the parable. Let me read it. Read it with me and pay attention to this because this is pretty fun. 
A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant, okay? So the guy that gets beat up and stuff is, is Adam. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. So that's what Jerusalem is. It's no longer the city Jesus is actually talking about. It's heaven. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. Well, of course, we all know that, Augustine. We all know that the moon symbolizes our mortality when we read the story of the Good Samaritan. Thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely of his immortality, and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. In the story, Jesus just says he left him half dead, meaning they just beat him into a pulp. But this guy says, well, there's a deep theology, theological meaning here. He knows of God, but he doesn't really follow him, so he's half dead. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord himself is signified by this name. So Jesus is actually this good Samaritan in this story. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine, the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast, that's the donkey that he's put on or whatever. The beast is the flesh in which he deigned to come to us. Uh, the being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church. Where do you take someone who's wounded and half dead? You take them into the church. The inn of God. The pillar and buttress of truth. All right? Where travelers returning from their heavenly country are refreshed after pilgrimage. The morrow is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two pence are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and that uh, which is to come. The innkeeper in the story is the Apostle Paul. So apparently Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan is talking about the Apostle Paul, which isn't even the Apostle Paul yet, all right? The Apostle Paul. Uh, the supererogatory payment is either the counsel of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands, lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new, though it was lawful for him to live by the gospel. You see, you've been interpreting it wrong all these years, all right? So what you see in the early church is you start to see not just allegory, which is in the Bible, but you start to see kind of allegory just be taken to crazy extremes. Jesus' point in the Good Samaritan is love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? It's the guy you don't really want to love. And though the, the religious elite walk past this guy and don't help him, it's the Good Samaritan that actually helps him. That's Jesus' point. But if you're Augustine, oh man, the thieves are the devil who try to steal your you know, immortality and the inn is the church and the apostle Paul's the innkeeper and you know, all these kind of things. And so what happens is this is not all bad. This, though, can just take you on the train to crazy town, all right? So you just have to be careful. You have that really being popular in the early church. Now, Antioch is the opposing viewpoint. Antioch says, what are you guys doing? You're making the Bible mean a bunch of crazy things. Let's take it more literally. Some of the heroes of the Antiochian school, again, you don't have to remember these names. I'm just mentioning these because uh, you'll hear these names sometimes reading theology, and just if you've heard them once or twice before, it starts to click. So I'm reading their names off. Theodore of Mopsuestia, Theodore of Tarsus, and John Chrysostom. Uh, and then later, a guy named Theodoret. And so, whereas these guys, the Alexandrian church leaders, had a tendency to allegorize Scripture, these guys had a tendency to take Scripture much more literally. Now, sometimes, though, the problem is, is they take it overly literally because the, the pendulum is swinging. They're saying, those guys are getting so crazy. Let's bring it way, way, way over here. And so these two schools arise in the early church. So just to summarize everything we've said, the early church is super weird and super different from us. Not theologically, but as far as in their practice and some of the things they have to do. Number two, in the early church, you start to see tradition rising up in the church as a way to refute heretics. 
So tradition now becomes the official way that you must interpret the Bible. Uh, And then three, you start to see this split between this more allegorical way of interpreting Scripture and this more literal way of interpreting Scripture. Everybody good on early church? All right, super excited. Glad you got up to sit through a history lesson. Okay, now let's talk about the medieval church. What do church services look like in the medieval church? So let's fast forward a few hundred years and let's get into the Middle Ages, which are pretty crazy. If you were to come to a church service in the Middle Ages, it would not look anything like any church service you've probably gone to today, okay? You would come in to an old cathedral with stained glass and candles being lit in veneration of saints and veneration of Mary, and you would come forward and you would listen to the service. The entire service would be in Latin. By the way, who knows when the Roman Catholic Church officially started doing services in the the language of the people? Uh, That's close, 1960s. Before that point, almost, not all, but almost all Catholic Church services were done in Latin. So you come in, you're uneducated, you can't read, you're illiterate. You come into this dark cathedral where there are candles burning, and a guy gets up wearing some shiny robes and some gold and uh, looking very lavish, despite what Jesus says about poverty, and he gets up and he gives a lesson in Latin, but you can't understand it. So church fathers will even talk about trying to, as they're preaching in Latin, trying to make uh, the words rhyme, so at least as people are sitting through it, at least they can hear some rhyming and these kind of things, because they can't get the meaning of it. Then what would happen is it would come time for you to take communion, all right? Mass is the very central service in a Roman Catholic uh, service. It's, it's the partaking of the Eucharist. Within, mass is the whole church service, technically. Partaking of the Eucharist or communion is the central focus of the service. So the central focus of a cathedral that's Roman Catholic is what? Does anybody know? It's a table up front where you partake or a railing up front where you partake communion. In Protestant churches, what's read the, the smack dab center of the sanctuary? A pulpit, because they would say the main point of the service is the preaching of the word. So in a lot of Anglican and Catholic services, the pulpit is off to the side. Sometimes it's up in a little tower. But the main focus is on communion, because if that literally becomes the physical body and blood of Jesus, that needs to be the focus of the service. In Protestant churches, you have a pulpit kind of in the middle of the, uh, of the worship service, because we would say the main focus is the preaching of the word. Here at Parkway, we have both, which I love, because it's both of those are important. We are preaching and proclaiming the truth of God's word, and we are partaking of that truth as we take of communion, okay? But in this thing, you would have the railing here, because let's pretend I'm a priest for a second. If I'm a priest, I'm closer to God than you. You have to, in a sense, go through me in my sacrificial uh, use of communion if you want to have fellowship with God. So there's a rail separating the gross laity from the Catholic priest that's up here. And so you would come forward, and you would kneel, and I would take a wafer, You weren't allowed to have the wine, by the way, of communion. Who knows why? What was it? Because you could spill it. In Catholic thinking in communion, the bread and the wine physically, literally become the body and blood of Jesus at communion. So if that cup contains the blood of Jesus, you do not want to spill Jesus. So they would not allow the lay people to take of that cup. Now, Catholics do believe that both the body and blood of Jesus are in both elements. The whole Christ is in the bread and the whole Christ is in the wine. So you are still getting that. But I would take the wine for you and I would give you a wafer and I would put it on your tongue and you would let it dissolve. Why do you let it dissolve? If it's Jesus' flesh. Because you don't want to chew the baby Jesus, all right? You don't want to chew Christ. So you let it dissolve on your tongue and there's this separation between me and you. And as you take it, you walk away and you're feeling pretty good about yourself because in your mind, you've just helped become more justified. 
So it's not that you're seen 100% perfect just by faith in Christ. You help beca- you've just been helped along becoming more justified by taking this mini sacrifice each week. That's pretty different than services today as we have in a Protestant church, is it not? So a medieval view of the church is going to be very, very, very different. Okay. Now, a few things about the medieval church. Let's talk about how they interpreted Scripture. They were better than just saying Scripture's literal or Scripture's allegorical. That's too simplistic. There are parts of Scripture that have both. What you have in the medieval church is something called the quadriga. All right? The quadriga. What word do you hear in the word quadriga? Mm Mm-hmm. Four. That's exactly right. Quad, right? So if you ride a four-wheeler, sometimes it's called a quad. The quadriga. And in the quadriga, you have uh, four different things they're looking at anytime they read a passage of Scripture. A literal meaning, an allegorical meaning, a moral meaning, and here's a new fancy word for you, an anagogical meaning. Pfft, what does that mean? We'll talk about that in just a second, okay? So you have this fourfold sense, this fourfold way of reading Scripture, okay? Reading Scripture. Now, here's what these stand for. The literal meaning is the literal meaning of the text. That one's pretty straightforward. If Jesus walks down to Jerusalem, it means he walked down to Jerusalem. That's not difficult. The allegorical meaning typically will be something that tells us uh, about a new work that's done in Christ. So when they talk about an allegorical meaning, they're asking themselves, how does this relate to what Christ has done? Okay? A moral meaning relates to the human soul. It relates to what we should then do. What should we do morally by reading this text? All right, sometimes that's called tropological, same thing. It just means, how does this relate to what we should do? And then anagogical, and this is sometimes called a heavenly interpretation, it has to do with things from God's view, it has to do with God, it has to do with heaven. So, just to recap these, literal, the straightforward meaning of the text. Allegorical, what does this text mean in light of Christ's new work that he's done? Moral, what should I then do in light of this text? How can I grow? How can I become more sanctified and more holy? Anagogical, what does this tell me about the future, what does it tell me about heaven, what does it tell me about eschatology, that kind of thing. You with me so far? I'll give you some examples. Now, let's go, go over some examples on what the medieval church, how they interpreted scripture. Let's take Jerusalem as an example. Jerusalem as an example. What is the literal meaning of Jerusalem in the medieval church? Jerusalem. Yes, Jerusalem, you got it. How do you know? Literal, all right? By the way, the word literal today is used often metaphorically. Someone will say something like, man, I was so scared, I literally jumped out of my skin. And I think, you'd be dead if you literally jumped out of your skin. People use the word literal metaphorically. That's literally how they use it, all right? So that's how they use it today. Now, so Jerusalem means Jerusalem. That's not difficult. When you read Jerusalem in the Bible, what is the allegorical meaning? It's the Christian church. It's a Christian church. You see, God dwells in Jerusalem at the temple, but allegorically now, because Christ has come, the place where God dwells is within his people, within, is within the church. So the, the medieval writers will interpret Jerusalem as the, work, or as the Christian church. Moral. What is the moral meaning of Jerusalem? The moral meaning of Jerusalem is the human soul. It's the human soul. So if the text says Jesus went down to Jerusalem, physically that means he went into this town. Spiritually, that, or allegorically, that means that he established the Christian church. Morally, that means you let him into your heart. He comes into your soul, your Jerusalem. Let Jesus in your Jerusalem, all right? That would be the moral meaning. And then the anagogical would be the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, okay? So just to recap, the medieval church, when they would interpret scripture, they would use this fourfold sense of scripture called the quadriga, and you would get several meanings of a text, not just one. Jesus went down to Jerusalem means he went into a city, he established the church, 
He's changing and shaping and sanctifying your soul, and one day the new Jerusalem will be here. He is coming back, okay? Uh, one second. We'll, we'll do questions at the end if that's okay. Let me give you another one. Let's use the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Ready? You guys are going to crush this first question. What is the meaning of David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath? Yes! All right, David historically kills this warrior from Gath, okay? What do you think could be an allegorical meaning of the story of David and Goliath? Something about Christ and his work. What do you think? If I were to look at the story of David and Goliath and try to interpret that and make that about Christ, what could that be about? Who does Christ defeat? (laughs) Yeah, it's on your sheet, so. Uh, Yeah, so it would be interpreted as Jesus defeating the devil, right? The devil is like Goliath. He's this foe that we cannot defeat on our own, and he taunts us, and what we need is we need a warrior king who's anointed by God to come and slay him to set God's people free, okay? Uh, What would be a moral interpretation of David and Goliath? It's not what you hear right before a football game. If you're a little school, and you're about to play a big school, and someone reads the story of David and Goliath, and is like, get out there, little guy. You can beat the big guy. That's not the meaning of that text. Uh, The moral would be something like, we, like David, should trust God to battle for us. David's scared. David doesn't really, I mean, he's just a little shepherd boy. He's not trained in war at this point. He doesn't use Saul's armor. It's too heavy. But what, should, what does he do? He has his hope in, in Yahweh. He knows that God will deliver him. And then the anagogical would be something like, good ultimately triumphs over evil when Christ returns. Good ultimately triumphs over evil when Christ returns. So you don't have to memorize all that. I just want you to know, in the medieval church, the way they viewed scripture is they viewed it as having kind of four different meanings that you were meant to find in that text of how it related literally, how it related to Christ and his work in the church, how it applies to your own life and how you can grow in sanctification and what it means in the future, heavenly, God's view, that kind of stuff. Another thing you have in the medieval church that rises up with its view of scripture, you have the separation of the clergy and laity in reading the Bible. You have the separation of the clergy, that just means ministers, and laity, the church members, uh, in reading the Bible. Okay. If services are in Latin, why does the church not want to do services or translate the Bible into the language of the common people? There's two reasons. What do you think? Does anybody know? Say it loud. So the, yes, they're, so they're stupid. So the, the medieval church has a very condescending view of the laity, okay? The medieval church does not want to interpret the Bible into the language of the common people for two reasons. Number one, it's seen as vulgar. We've got God's holy word in Latin, this beautiful language from the Romans, the most powerful empire that's ever existed on earth. We don't want to translate it into blah, English or German or French or something like that, despite the fact that they're reading from a translation because the Bible's not originally written in Latin. It's called the Vulgar, the Vulgate, all right? So one reason that they don't want to translate it into the common tongue of the people is because they see that as vulgar, somehow less holy. The other reason they don't want to do it is because of what Brian said, that there's a fear of people will misinterpret it people will misinterpret it. If I'm a Catholic priest, I've had years and years and years of schooling. I know multiple languages. I could be very, very educated. Maybe I went to the University of Paris or Oxford or Cambridge or something like this, and I have a lot of education. I know church history. I know church tradition. My boss is a bishop whose boss is a bishop whose boss is a cardinal whose boss is a pope. I stand within a tradition that knows how to interpret the Bible. So if we start putting the the Bible in the language of the common people, you'll get 15 billion denominations. Is that what we have today, by the way? That is true. Now, if you give people the Bible in their language, there are people who will take it in different directions and you will get different denominations. 
However, I think that's just a necessary evil. I think it's better for the average person to have the Bible in their language, knowing that we're going to have different divisions and things we have to fight through, versus there just being one official interpretation of the Bible, and if that goes wrong, all of Christendom goes with it. But that's what they were afraid of. They were afraid of, they were afraid of if we put this into the language of the common people and they read it on their own, they're going to come up with all kinds of crazy interpretations. And partially they're right, but partially they're wrong. Why? Because, and here's just this capstone, that's why we believe in the sufficiency, the necessity, the clarity of Scripture, that the average Christian can read it who has the spirit that we interpret it in community to help guard against some of those excesses that can come when everybody has a Bible. Everybody with me? So you see, though, this, uh, one of the first things Martin Luther wants to do is he wants to, ter- he wants to translate the entire Bible into German so that the average person pushing their plow can be reading their New Testament as they're working on their farm. That's one of his dreams. Because he knows if he can get the Bible into the language of the common people, he can defeat some of the corruption going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And so Martin Luther, who, by the way, is very smart, he translates the entire Bible from Hebrew and Greek into German by himself in the Wartburg Castle Why he's being spiritually attacked. All right? Uh, He has to hide in this castle so the people don't kill him. He hides in this castle. He dresses like a knight. He goes by the name Knight George. He grows out a huge beard, and he translates the Bible. Martin Luther, all right? Awesome. Uh, Another thing you have, you have the rise of tradition, the papacy, and church teaching. We said in the early church, what was the way that people defeated heresy when bad interpretations of the Bible would arise? Tradition. That idea continues to grow and continues to amplify, okay? You have the Pope who can give official interpretations of the church. You have church history that you can appeal to. A lot of times if you want to make a point in the Middle Ages, you don't just quote Paul or Jesus or Peter or something like that. You quote Augustine, you quote Anselm, you quote Aquinas, you quote some of these guys. Athanasius, you quote different church leaders, almost on the same level as Scripture. I mean, these are learned, godly men, and so their interpretations are held very, very highly, okay? By the way, anybody in here know someone who's Roman Catholic or have a Roman Catholic neighbor or anything? Okay, most people do. When you talk to your Roman Catholic neighbor, don't get caught up in all the little differences between Protestants and Catholics, whether or not they ask Mary to pray for them or whether or not they can only eat fish on Friday or these kind of things. Those things are not as important. If you talk to your Catholic neighbor or your Catholic friend, there are two doctrines you need to talk about with them primarily. The first is justification. How is one made slash declared right before God? In Protestantism, it is by faith alone in Christ and repentance, just putting all your hope in Christ, and God justifies you. He declares you to be something that you're not, which is righteous. And Roman Catholic thinking, the way that you're justified is it's progressive. It happens a little bit over time, a little bit more over time, a little bit more over time, not just through faith in Christ, but also by good acts of charity and by the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. So that's the first, there's several differences between Protestants and Catholics. That's the first big one, though. You need to talk about how is one, how does one become cool with God? How are you and God, how do you become friends? That's what you need to talk about. It's by faith alone in Christ, not faith plus good works, sacraments, etc. okay? The second thing you need to talk to them about is what is the source of authority for Christians? What is the source of authority for Christians? What is the answer if you're a Protestant? The Bible alone, sola scriptura, is the Bible. That's where we go. That is the standard uh, that has no other standards. All right, that is the one. That is the highest standard that we have. What is it in the Roman Catholic Church? It is the Bible, but alongside the Bible, you have 
the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And whether or not they say this officially in the minds of the common Catholic or the common people, those things are really held together. Sometimes tradition is even exalted over that because if you determine how the Bible's interpreted, there's a sense in which you're over the Bible. And so we would have one source of authority. We would say the scriptures, whereas in Roman Catholicism, you would have the scriptures plus the official teaching of the church. In fact, the Pope today can even sit down and give new doctrine officially that's on the same level as scripture. When he sits down in his chair and speaks what's called ec cathedra from the chair, he can declare a new doctrine, like the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven or the immaculate conception that Mary was born without sin, these kind of things. And so you have in the medieval church not just the Bible, you have the Bible along with the official interpretation or the official doctrine or the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and Jeff will talk some more about that next week. Now, let me give you some quotes from some Catholic leaders about how highly they view this tradition. Okay, you ready? The first one comes from a guy named Hugh of St. Victor. Do not attempt to learn by yourself, lest, believing yourself introduced to knowledge, you be rather blinded. That introduction is to be uh, sought for from men of doctrine and wisdom with the authorities of the Holy Fathers. He's saying, dear Christians, don't try to interpret the Bible yourself thinking that you know how to interpret it. You need to just look at what previous guys have interpreted, these Holy Fathers, okay? There's a guy named Thomas Netter who's a theologian from the 14th century, so before the Reformation from the 1300s, and he says this, listen to this. The church protects and keeps the unwritten words of the apostles and their unwritten tradition which would all belong to the canon of Scripture had they been written. I believe that the Catholic Church still keeps like a treasure the greater part of the words of St. Paul and the traditions and successive documents of the fathers. All right? So what you see here in the medieval church is that they believe that Scripture is needed for the well-being of the church, but it's not necessarily needed for the existence of the church. The church can function on the official teaching and institution of the Roman Catholic Church. This is one of the big things Luther will fight against in the Reformation. Okay, let's finish by looking at the Vulgate, and then we're going to have Jeff come up, and we're going to do a little bit of Q&A, a little bit of question and answer. So what is the Vulgate? Somebody repeat it back to me. Very good. It's the Latin translation of the Bible by a guy named, again, Jerome. Very good. Uh, it is the official Bible of the church. Let me give you some misinterpretations within the Vulgate that are going to become important during the Reformation, okay? In Ephesians 5, in the Vulgate, marriage is called, in Greek, it's a mystery, a mysterion, okay? It's a mystery. The Vulgate, though, translated that term as sacramentum, which means it is a sacrament, okay? Let me tell you why this is important. How many sacraments... And, or if, if, if you're uncomfortable with the term, uh, if you're unto, uncomfortable with the term sacrament, the term ordinance is fine. Sometimes Baptists like to say ordinance because we, we want to get away from all that Catholicy stuff. And so, what two ordinances or sacraments do we have in a Protestant church? Baptism and communion. How many do they have in Roman Catholicism? Seven. Seven sacraments. Okay. Marriage, holy orders, which is if you're ordained as a priest. Baptism. Communion, the Eucharist. Extreme unction, which is this prayer for you before you die. Okay? Penance, which is you do these things to show that you're sorry and to show that you want to have faith in Christ. And confirmation. All right? So marriage, holy orders, extreme unction, baptism, communion, penance, and confirmation. Those are the seven sacraments within Roman Catholicism. Whereas uh, we would say if we look, and this is a big thing with the Reformation, when you look in the Bible, there's only two things that Jesus institutes, two rituals that he institutes that are meant to be continuing like that, all right? Baptism, which is done once, and then communion. Another misinterpretation from the Vulgate, which causes problems in the church. In Matthew 4, 17, the Vulgate has Jesus saying, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
The text says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are different things. In Roman Catholicism, when you commit a sin to show that you are sorry and to show that you're trying to reorient your life by doing these liturgical practices which puts you back under the grace of God and reminds you of the truth of scripture, you do these acts of penance. So if I, you know, uh, do some sort of sin, I go sit with the Catholic priest, I confess my sins, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He's not forgiving me, he's just saying that God has forgiven me. Uh, He'll say, now go do five Hail Marys, three Our Fathers, and go do this thing. Now, why he's telling me to do that is to, one, show that I'm sorry, but two, when you practice doing righteous deeds, it helps you actually become it helps you actually become more righteous. It helps you become more virtuous. And so by doing those acts, I'm actually practicing the things I should have done to begin with that would have kept me from the sin. And so you have this idea of penance being taught. Do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, okay? And then uh, in Luke 1.28, Mary is said to be a favored one in Greek, right? The angel calls her a favored one. The Vulgate calls her, in, in uh, the Latin translation, Mary full of grace, Mary full of grace. Hail Mary full of grace, okay? Let me tell you where this, what this became in the medieval church. Um, when you die in Roman Catholicism, if you're not a Christian, where do you go? No, you go to hell. Purgatory is only if you're a Christian, okay? So, that's, that, I'm, I'm, glad, so I'm glad that you mentioned that because most people think that. Purgatory is not a place for the damned. Purgatory is a place for the saved, If you're in purgatory, you know you're eventually going to make it, all right? You're in. Huzzah! You've got your last leg of the race, all right? So if you're a a Roman Catholic and you're in a Roman Catholic system of theology, if you're not a Christian and you die, you go to hell. If you're a Christian, before you can go to heaven, you have to go to this place called purgatory, okay? If God demands that you be 100% righteous and you die and you're only 90% righteous, well, you got to burn off that other 10%. You have to be purge-atoried, and that's where you go. You go to be purged of those defilements before you can go to heaven. Well, here's the good news. Some people live such virtuous lives that they have extra grace that you can borrow. They have extra grace that you can get. So if you need 100 good points to go to heaven and you only have 90, well, guess what? Mary's got like a billion. And so you can be like, Mary, hey, can I, can I borrow some on credit? And she can give you some good points and you can get through purgatory, all right? So you get this idea in the medieval church of what is called a treasury of merit. The saints and Mary and these holy people have earned extra good points that you can take uh, from like this giant heavenly bank account uh, to get you out of purgatory. So if you say, wait a second, that doesn't sound biblical. That's why we have the Reformation, which Jeff will talk about next week. So if all this sounded really weird, let me just be really clear. Just about everything that I have taught today, I'm not saying I actually believe. I'm trying to let you see what other people have believed so you value your faith more highly. When you go tomorrow morning and you sit down and you open your Bible to read it and you have a Bible in your own language that you can understand, that is a gift from God because a lot of Christians have not had that. When you come to a church service today and you and I are equal, right? I don't have special magic priest powers. My job is a minister, but you and I have equal access to God in Christ because Christ is the one mediator between man and God. We take of communion, we're reminded of, and we celebrate and we participate with Christ and his work on the cross. It's not because we're re-sacrificing him every week. If you like the things you like about your faith, you have godly men who were burned alive and killed and tortured and persecuted to thank for that. And so my hope is that by seeing what other Christians have believed, you might be encouraged uh, in what God has done in giving you so many gifts and so many blessings of having a Bible in your own language, uh, having the ability to come before God without having to go through a priest, without superstition and these kind of things. So that's my encouragement to you. Jeffrey, come up on stage and let's answer some questions 
did you still uh, have one? Did you have a question from earlier? Another one that's better? Okay. <laughs> Good question. I'm going to repeat it just for the recording. His question is, so we mentioned the two reasons that the church didn't want the Bible in the hands of the lay people is one, they'd misinterpret it. Two, it was seen as vulgar. He asked, is there not a third reason where they want to maintain power? Because in the Roman Catholic Church, you have to go through the church, in a sense, to really be, uh, I mean, in some senses, saved. They wouldn't say that today. They would say you still need to be a part of a church. But yeah, there is this power kind of struggle within the church. Jeffrey. Uh, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There is, uh, so so there are faithful uh, Roman Catholic uh, priests and bishops, cardinals, and and so forth uh, throughout history that probably had less of an inclination to do it for that particular reason. Um, But certainly as the Roman Catholic system develops over time, there is more and more and more of an emphasis upon uh, protecting what is ours and uh, and not giving power uh, to others. And especially it, it, it comes with uh, the Catholic Church and the different relationships with kingdoms and so forth. It becomes much more than just an ecclesiological organization. It becomes this military, uh, almost a kingdom in and of itself, uh, an empire in and of itself. And so uh, the more that it begins to get intermingled with the world, the more that there is this desire to protect uh, its own power and authority and so forth. So, absolutely. But they don't always, but they wouldn't all, not all of them see it that way. There are faithful, you know, priests and bishops and things that they're just thinking, Jesus established that you have to go through the church, not us. And so it's not a power struggle for them. They're, they're, some of them are just trying to be faithful. Are there saved Catholics? There are saved Catholics. But a lot of Catholics are not saved because certain doctrines are stumbling blocks from them just resting and trusting in Christ. Yeah, so the, the question basically is, uh, you know, for one, a comment that, yeah, a lot of times those in power don't want the average person to have access to knowledge so they can maintain their power. The other question that he asked had to do with, uh, is one of the reasons the Catholic Church wants to make this official interpretation of the Bible still the Latin Vulgate because it supports their traditions, certainly by the time of the Reformation. But here's the thing, here's what you have to remember about translations. When the New Testament authors uh, quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament, Do they most often quote from the original Hebrew Bible, or do they quote from a translation, the Septuagint, the Greek? They quote from a translation. So what they would say is, listen, if a translation is a good translation, the biblical authors are okay calling it Scripture. And so if the the Latin Vulgate is a good translation, which the church had used at that point about a thousand years, they would say, we're not just trying to maintain these doctrines. This is what the church has always held. I mean, in their mind, Luther is just a schismatic. Luther is coming up with all these new interpretations that nobody has ever held. Because what you have to hold if you're Luther is you have to say, popes can err, councils can err, I've got it right. Now, that's great if you've got it right. That can happen. It's just very difficult. You have to make a very strong case for that. So yes, they will eventually want to keep those to say, we think this is inspired and this is the right interpretation. But you have to realize they already held that the Vulgate was inspired before that point. Comments? Anything else on that? Yes, uh, how is the quadrigo wrong? All right, that's a great question. Not every part of Scripture it, you're meant to try to strain on all these categories, okay? There are some where you, that it, the meaning is fuller. So if we talk about in uh, Isaiah, the young woman or the virgin will be with child. Well, we know later on from the New Testament that there's a pretty big allegorical point there because it's going to point to Christ. And, we know, and so you, you can start teasing out these different facets. But if I just say, uh, you know, Jesus went into Capernaum, 
you don't need to say, God is meaning in this text that Capernaum is our heart, and we need to let Jesus in our heart of Capernaum. That's too far. And so it's just too simple. You can't say all of the Bible should be interpreted through these four lenses because some passages maybe just should be interpreted this way, or others might just should be interpreted allegorically. So when a sword comes out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Revelation, that doesn't mean he vomits a weapon. It means he judges his enemies by his word. His word does slay. But that's more allegorical. I wouldn't say there's a literal part where he vomits a sword. And so not every part of the Bible will fit within a, the, all four of these lenses. That's, what, that's the problem with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say in addition to that, there's also a sense in which um, there becomes over time this distortion even of the good. So I think the, the example that he gave of the, the Good Samaritan is a really good example. If you look at that, that's the direction that they took the allegory. There's nothing wrong with reading uh, the Old Testament through an allegorical or a typological, that's the language that Protestants typically use, uh, is that there's these types of Christ. Uh, so you can see relationships between Melchizedek and Jesus or Joseph and Jesus or Moses and so forth. But uh, what happens over time is there's this distortion uh, where where every little detail begins to take on some sort of nuance and so forth. So I would look at that Good Samaritan sort of example as the excesses that can be associated with the method. So. Have you ever noticed when we do Q&A how much deeper Jeff's voice sounds than mine? Like I, I sound like like a nasally little girl. What? And he gets up there and it's it's amazing. So I was listening to the recording and I thought, I need to fake a lower voice or else people are going to lose respect. Uh, okay, what else? Any other questions on this? Has this been helpful and encouraging? I know there's a lot of random info, but I hope it, it encourages you in your faith and you know a little bit more how you got here. Good question. Let's talk. And eventually, we'll, we'll, maybe we can do a, uh, some sort of a series or something on church history. I think that would be fun. Would y'all like that or would that put you to sleep? Okay, you might have to wait several years till we finish theology. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, so her question is, what about St. Peter? What about this idea of a pope? Jeff, you kick it off, and then I will add comments. Great. So, yeah, so the word uh, pope, uh, the word papacy, uh, same root word as papa, and so it means father. And, uh, and so the idea, so we know historically that uh, Peter eventually made his way to, uh, to Rome. Uh, that's probably where he is uh, put to death. Um, and according to the Roman Catholic Church, he becomes sort of the first uh, pope. And, uh, and so in their mind, there is this uh, relatively unbroken line of succession. So Peter passes off uh, the papacy to uh, the next guy, I forget who uh, the next quote-unquote pope is, uh, who passes it off, who passes it off, who passes it off. And so uh, today, uh, a Benedict or whatever is a direct descendant, not biological, but spiritual descendant of, uh, of the uh, apostles and specifically from Peter. And they base that on, on the basis of, of Matthew where it talks about uh, that you are the rock and on this rock I will build my church. In other words, he is the, the foundation, the bedrock, and all of the succession is going to come uh, from him and carry the same authority, the apostolic authority that, uh, that he has. So that's the idea in the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, so maybe a way to think of it like there's an office of president, okay? And it doesn't necessarily matter the morality of the person in the office, right? There's just, it's, if you're in the seat of the president, you're the president and you have certain authority. So what they see is when Jesus says, you're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church, he has just said something unique to Peter that he didn't say to the other disciples. And so the idea is as time goes on and the church expands, there will be someone who kind of sits in the seat of Peter that's kind of in that. So if Peter is kind of seen as this first church leader in Rome, 
kind of this bishop, if you will, over the city, then whoever then is in that seat in Rome after him is kind of like Peter Jr., and then Peter Jr. Jr., and then Peter the Fourth, or whatever like this. And so it's seen as this continuing office. Uh, that's where they get that from. We're not saying we agree with that. I don't know how you get from your Peter on the rock will build my church to then say, everybody you lay your hands on can now give new revelation from God. But that's the idea. That's the idea of what you get it with the, the papa, the papa, the daddy, the pope. He is never, he was never the pope. Yeah, he was, he was just a church leader in Rome. That's it. So over time and tradition, this idea of the papacy grows. So one of the first guys on record we have as being pope is a guy named Gregory the Great, uh, and that comes hundreds of years later. And he didn't even want the office. They had to hunt him down with dogs to make him become the pope. And, uh, and so then it grows, it grows from there, all right? And you get its height under a guy named Innocent III in the Middle Ages, uh, which, yeah, the pope starts to be seen as what's called the vicar of Christ, the person who stands in the place of Christ on earth. So in the early church, there's, there's, all, there's these bishops of all these different cities. And, uh, and so you have uh, the, the guy who's kind of the leader of the church in Rome, the leader of the church in Constantinople, the leader of the church in Alexandria, in Antioch, and so forth. And there is no primacy. There is no sort of, this is the leader of the leaders. Uh, it's just shared sort of authority. And, uh, and so they would get together for these councils and so forth, and the, the, the leader of the church in Rome, the leader of the church in Constantinople, they'd all have equal vote. Over time, there begins to be this elevation, and then there has to be this thought behind it. Okay, how do we prove this from the text? And so that's the appeal to uh, Peter's succession and so forth. But the, the big idea that divides Protestants and Catholics in, in regards to this particular issue is, uh, that we're still looking at apostolic authority. It's just for Protestants, we believe apostolic authority is contained within the scriptures. We don't need an, an enduring voice of the apostles other than what's already recorded in the scriptures. For the Roman Catholic tradition, there is this need for fresh, continual revelation, uh, and so therefore there is a need for fresh, continual, ongoing uh, popes and so forth. One more question. We'll get out of here, get some coffee or some Red Bull if you're so inclined. What else? Any other questions? Come next week when Jeff chats about the Reformation. You'll really be encouraged. You'll see all these things that we've been teaching. That I'm hoping that it'll really hit home on why these things are so important. Uh, so, Jeffrey, do you want to pray and thank God for preserving his word for us? And uh, then we'll uh, go get ready for services. Sure. <laughs> Father, thank you for... Uh, this morning, thank you for an opportunity for us to uh, gather together and hopefully uh, be encouraged, Lord, even as we um, think about history, Lord, to see how uh, you have uh, preserved your word, that you have uh, protected us from uh, some of the excesses and some of the uh, mistakes that our forefathers have made. And, uh, and yet, we confess that we make mistakes, Lord, that we have blind spots, and so pray that you would help us uh, to see those and to amend our ways, Lord, not to do penance, but to repent. And uh, I'm so grateful for uh, Zach and for his uh, studying and his teaching. Uh, pray that our hearts would be encouraged as we uh, continue to consider your word and as we go forth from here uh, for uh, the sermon, as we think about the issue of discipleship, how you've called us to make disciples. And uh, so I pray that you would give us a heart that longs to see more and more of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, bow the knee to your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.